Welcome to Coach House Talks. Okay, good morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been quite blessed not to have many job interviews. It's just the way it is in my industry, thankfully. Um, but the one I have had was a complete disaster. Now, the dictionary defines a job interview as an interview consisting of a conversation between a job applicant and a representative of an employer who is conducted to assess whether the applicant should be hired or not. Jamie Baker defines a job interview as a moment in time where you feel most on the spot, a bit like right now, where any and every word you say will be written down, recorded and judged, where the pressure and what's at stake is very high. So today, we're all going to have a job interview, welcome. And the person on the other side of the table is Acts 18. So let's just recap where we are. So we're currently on Paul's second missionary journey. It begins with a fight between Paul and Barnabas on whether they should take Mark on the road or not. Barnabas heads off to Cyprus and Paul heads north from Antioch down here to Tarsus. Now he's visiting churches he's previously been at. So Derby, Iconium, Antioch. And then Paul tries to go to Asia. But what does God say? Well, God basically says, nope, just like this door. Yep, no, there is no way you're going that way, Paul. I've got another vision. Okay, cool. Okay. He tries to go to Bithynia, and basically the exact same thing happens, okay? He shuts the door again. But what we realize is God and the Holy Spirit is guiding him. He ends up in Troas, which is kind of just center of the picture up there. And this is where he has the vision of the Macedonian man. And Macedonia, for those who don't know, is basically current-day Greece, as you can see, or at least the southern part is. He takes a boat trip with Silas from Troas to near that place, and uh, on to Philippi. And arriving in Philippi, he's, he's going to be preaching and teaching. But was it successful? Well, there were some converts in Philippi, but most rejected it. One very redeeming thing of Philippi, and one significant thing, is that Paul uh, cast out the demon of the, in the slave girl. And for that, he took a beating and was put into prison. It's not great, really, is it? Um, so, uh, Philippi, he went from Philippi to Thessalonica. Same situation, goes into, goes into the synagogue, starts preaching, and they kick him out. He then travels to Berea. And what happens? Well, the Bereans are slightly different. They start to accept, but the Jews in Thessalonica go, hang on a minute, he's causing some trouble down there. So they travel from Thessalonica to Berea and kick Paul out. And then last week, Steve went, took us all the way into Athens. And as Paul's waiting for his companions, he changes his tact. He contextualizes the gospel. He goes, you know what? I need to change how I present this. So he goes, and what does he do? Well, he walks around the streets, he listens to the poets and the religions and the culture of the time, and he makes this elaborate speech, this inscription to the unknown God. He presents Jesus as the unknown God, the God of heaven. He used all the poets and all the clever things, incredible stuff that was happening in Athens at the time. But was it successful? In part it was. A handful of people accepted the message, but not everybody. So Paul then travels on to Corinth, where we pick it up today. So can I ask you, to, if you've got a Bible or a phone or a smartphone, if you can turn to Acts 18, 
It's probably a good idea to keep it open. I'm not going to read all of it, but um, I will read some of it. So, Acts 18. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy where Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So, what do we know about Corinth? Well, Corinth is here, where the little red dot is. This is obviously Greece, you can see Athens over there. Now, um, Corinth was one of the greatest commercial centres of the time. It sat between the two major harbours. You can see this wee little, wee little line here, where the canal is. Um, it sat between two major harbours and commanded the trade routes between Asia and Rome. So this place is really important. But there is also a dark side to Corinth. This is where the Temple of Aphrodite was. Um, and what we do know about the Temple of Aphrodite is it was upkept by around about a thousand prostitutes who would go out um, into the sex industry and the money they gained would then keep, keep the upkeep of the temple. So it's, it's an important place, but also an incredible, incredibly dark place, and by all accounts, probably as dark as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if we look at Corinth today, what they've done is they've made this gorgeous canal. So this is the Corinth Canal as it stands now, um, where they've actually dug in a, this beautiful canal which joins both the Aegean and Adriatic Seas. So still the area is quite important, uh, but now they don't kind of have to go up and over. They can kind of go straight through as long as someone's not coming the other way because then that would be a little bit of a problem considering it's four miles long. I don't fancy going backwards in about four miles. Okay, so let's continue. So Paul is in Corinth. He's by himself. Silas and Timothy have stayed with the Bereans. He's lonely. He's wandering around. And he meets Priscilla and Aquila. They've been expelled from Rome. And we can assume that their home was probably a tent, seen as they were tent makers. Something a little bit like this picture. So, Paul bumps into Priscilla and Aquila and they start talking. But why do they start talking? Well, because they've got something in common. They're talking about tents. For some reason, we're all attracted to people that, and we have friendships with people who know the same stuff as us. So Paul goes and lives with them. But there's a real big lesson here in that very, very short sentence. And I think the lesson's this, that there are people in our community that you are able to reach with the gospel better than anyone else in this church. Do we believe it? With your collection of hobbies, your skills, your interests, you personally and collectively are in a unique place in life where there are people who can be saved by the gospel and you are in the best place to lead them. It's an incredible thought, but also a bit of an incredible burden. We see from Paul that his background as a missionary, but also his interest in making tents or leather making, depending on your version of the Bible, um, his trade connected him with the culture. So Paul's a missionary, but what is a missionary? Well, a missionary is someone who's on a mission. Anybody can be a missionary. But a Christian missionary, 
That's someone that God has called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We take hold of that mission, we engage with it, because we are mission, we're missionaries too. You might not think it, but we should all be on a mission. Some of us may travel, some may stay at home, and some of us might not even know it yet. Hopefully by the end of today, you will. Um, the, the, there is a danger that we think that missionaries are people who are paid, who are professional, who are full-time, who, um, who are equipped or trained. But do we see that in Acts? Well, not really. In some people we do, of course, but not all. We think that Paul's a full-time missionary. In some parts of his life he was full-time, spending all his time preaching. But here in Corinth, he does something a little different. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, he lives among them, he works for six days making tents or leather wallets or whatever it was that they were doing at the time, and on the Sabbath he heads to the synagogue and he presents the gospel. So here we have a part-time missionary being a full-time missionary because his job is part of his missionary work. And his job is also about connecting with people. And Priscilla and Aquila end up being actually quite a significant couple. A few things we know from Priscilla and Aquila, and we'll, we'll see a bit later on, is they are a formidable husband and wife team. They serve the early church together. We realise that couples can have an effective ministry together and that home, or a tent, or a caravan, or whatever you class as home, is a very valuable medium for evangelism. And also that they support themselves. Priscilla and Aquila actually were full-time missionaries and they supported themselves six days a week by building tents. We don't really know what happens on the seventh day, but we can hazard a guess. Okay, so our first question for our job interview, are we willing to serve God without financial reward? Well, being a missionary is not a job or a career, although we do have people who have it as a job, but it's a calling. Paul works six days, supports himself. He's called to be a missionary. But with Paul, it didn't matter his age, his financial status, only that he was called. In verse 5 of Acts 18, Paul was occupied. He was alone, but he was already testifying to the Jews. He was testifying that Jesus was the Messiah before his mates, Timothy and Silas, come along. He's already sticking his neck out on his own for the gospel. In Acts 17, back in Athens, Paul tries a new style. He quotes the poets. He does this big, eloquent speech. And he tries something new. But in Corinth, Paul puts all of that pomp and circumstance aside. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 3, it says, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, and this is Paul talking, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. So here, we, here in Corinthians, we find that Paul's reflecting on, um, with his letter to the church in Corinth about he first ministered to them. And actually in Corinth, there's a load more detail than there is in Acts about this because he's had chance to think about it his chance to write it all down but what we do know is Paul's always willing to try new things Yay! he gets beat up in Philippi he has trouble in Berea and Thessalonica 
And then in arriving arriving in Athens, he thinks, I'm going to contextualize the gospel. I'm going to make it fancy. I'm going to use all these fancy big words. As you can tell by the way I talk, I don't have fancy big words in my uh, vocabulary. And he makes an eloquent speech, but it didn't really work out so well. So on traveling to Corinth, he decides, you know what? I'm going to strip it back. I'm just going to preach the basic message of Christ crucified. And so Paul's presenting to the Jews that Jesus dies on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 24. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So why would the Jews find Christ coming such a stumbling block? Well, if we, we look at the Jews, uh, their messianic expectation from Genesis 3:15 all the way through the Old Testament through the temple system, through the Davidic covenant, is that this king would establish his kingdom. And so over a period of time, they've drawn up a view, as we all would if we stay stagnant, where the Messiah Messiah is going to come, and it's a huge idealistic view. So you can imagine Paul in a synagogue, sitting there, reviewing the great prophecies of the New Testament, and in the back of his mind he's going... I'm talking about a lonely Jew here who came from a wicked town who was homeless, who was rejected by the Jews and killed on a cross. So you can see why Paul was trembling. He's had a beating. Every time he's brought this in front of the Jews, something's gone wrong. And the Jewish culture sees him foolish. But what about the Gentiles? Well, Paul's also saying, he's saying the, base, the, the same thing, sorry. And it's trust. He's saying, you've got to trust in this, this belief system in this Messiah who died upon a cross. Who, and, but they also see it as foolish. So it's difficult. Paul's preaching Christ crucified and resurrection. But Paul's preaching from a stance that this has changed Paul's life. Paul is now where he is because of this moment. Because Paul looked at the cross. He saw a saviour. He saw the power of God. And he saw someone willing to lay all aside. So Paul wanted to try whatever it was to show this to others. So question two in our job interview, are we willing to try new things? Well, Paul is, but how about us? In verses five to six, Paul's opposed, he's insulted. He shakes all the dust off his clothes. And he says to the Jews, you're on your own. I'm going to go and have a chat with some Gentiles. Now let me show you this guy. So, Corinth Canal again. This crazy chap is a guy called Robbie's Madison. He's a motocross, so a motorbike uh, rider. Robbie was on a mission to jump over the Corinth Canal. I mean, you can see he's done it, thankfully. I mean, there's not hundreds of him, it's just one. It's just clever photography. Um... But how did Robbie get to this point? Well, I'm going to have to read this word for word because it's not my, not my thing. He endured a broken neck. He broke both collarbones twice, both legs twice, a brain hemorrhage, a punctured lung, snapped anterior cruciate ligaments, fractured vertebrae, a, toe, a torn lower lip. He's had most of his front teeth knocked out, thankfully replaced. His nose was broken at least a dozen times and multiple lesser fractures, spinal injuries and numerous concussions. But Robbie was on a mission. He wanted to be able to do this. 
And so he continues on his mission. And Robbie was willing to crash and continue. How much more are we, should we be willing to crash and continue when actually all we've got to do is tell people about Jesus? In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 26, Paul stands out. He says, well, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I was spent a whole day and night adrift at sea. Traveled many long journeys, faced dangers from rivers and uh, robbers and danger from my own people, the Jews, as well from the Gentiles. Faced dangers in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but who are not. Paul is willing to crash but dust himself off and continue. So, question three. Are we willing to get knocked back down and get back up again? Well, verses seven to ten, we find Paul makes his very bold move. He moves next door to the synagogue, which is a bit crazy, really, with Paul's history of beating. But it seems like he's fearless and he's bold. And Paul's just presenting Christ. That's all he's doing. And as we can see from missionaries all over the world, that some face extreme difficulties, but some also do not. Now, in the, in the next coming months, we're hoping here to run the Alpha Course, which is a great way of um, showing and explaining the Christian faith to people who just don't know, or people who are, who are actually searching. And so there's going to come a time where we're going to face a little bit of difficulty. We as a church and we as, as people will be asked to go out and invite some of our non-Christian friends. And it's going to feel a bit tricky. But one thing I can say is, I don't think we're going to get 39 lashes for asking someone to come to Alpha. Okay. Question four, are we willing to step forward? In verse, verse nine, God says, do not be afraid, fear not. And this is one of the common phrases, as we all know, of God in the Bible. It's at least 50 times this kind of sentence comes out. But why does God say this to Paul? Surely Paul's not afraid. But Paul was afraid, and God knew what he needed and when he needed it. The reason why, well, verses 11 to 17 show that he's obviously living next to the synagogue. He's preaching, he's teaching, and he stays there for a year and a half. This wasn't like any of the other places where he was there for two days, three days, three weeks. Paul was in it for the long haul. And what we find from this, this little section of this whole chapter is that God's timing is beyond ours. And it's also beyond our control and beyond our understanding. And so we spend a lot of time waiting because change is a process. Many people want change but don't want to wait. But the truth is, waiting is a given. We are going to have to wait. Now the decision is, do we wait the right way or the wrong way? If we wait the wrong way, we'll be miserable. But if we decide to wait God's way, doing God's work, we can become patient and enjoy the wait. The day you plant the seeds 
is not the day you eat the fruit. We're going to have to do some sowing. But we're going to have to believe in God's timing. And so this does take a little bit of practice. We need to let God help us in every situation of our lives. To develop patience. And this is kind of one of the most important Christian virtues. Galatians 5.22, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's developed only under trial. And to be fair to Paul, he had his fair share of the trial. James 1-4, don't run from difficult situations. Let endurance, steadfastness and patience have full play and do a thorough work so that you may be perfectly and fully developed, lacking in nothing. So you can see Paul's been around a year and a half doing his thing. He's not really seeing any movement. And then get Paul, Paul gets dragged in front of the governor. And the Jews are accusing him of teaching how to worship in way, worshiping God in ways that are contrary to the law. But remember, God's already said, do not be afraid. So what happens? Well, it, it reads that Paul starts his defense. So you can imagine he's going, um, yeah, uh, let me just tell you about... And then Gallio throws it out. Not even got a chance to say, he, to say what he feels. Paul doesn't need to fight his own battle because God's already looking after him. So, slide, so question five. Are we willing to encounter problems only God can solve? Like the Israelites, stuck by the Red Sea. The Egyptians are coming in and God says, don't worry, I'll fight for you. I'm going to part the sea and you'll escape. But they were waiting for God to give them direction. They stayed overnight. And they were even pleading with Moses, no, it's all right, let's go back. We don't want to get killed. But Moses knew. Moses says, do not be afraid. They were willing to encounter problem, a problem that only God could solve. They were between a rock and a hard place. They were between the Egyptians and the sea. And they stayed overnight. And then the next morning, what happens? Probably something as cool as this. I mean, I hope it was cool, cool like that. But I mean, we, we don't know. It could be like a little trickle here. There. But let's make it big and fancy. And that, you know, I think that would definitely prove that that's a problem that only God could have solved. And just like Paul, they waited, they were changed, and they were protected by God. Verses 18 to 21, um, a bit that I've had a chat with Andy about this morning because I'm a little bit unsure about this, but here we go. Paul shaves his head. Well, I mean, lots of fellas do that in the comfort of their own bathrooms. So what's uh, important about this? Well, it's the end of a vow. And we, we assume that the vow was that of the temporary Nazarite. We read that, if you want to read more, no, uh, Numbers 6, 1 to 21. And it implies a separation from the world and common life, which is basically what the word Nazarite means. That was the meaning of it. And while under the vow, the man was to let no razor pass over his head or face. And when the term was completed, he was to shave his head at the door of the tabernacle and burn the hair in the fire of the altar. I mean, this seems quite extreme. And we don't really know why he does it. There's no real explanation. Lots of people who are a lot cleverer than I say that it could be because he's wanting to be a little bit more relevant to the culture he's now in. We just don't know. So it's an interesting one. Question six. 
Are we willing to define success as only, go, as only following God's will? So Paul sets sail with Priscilla and Aquila and they get to Ephesus and it's a different playing field from the first time he went. He goes to the synagogue, they ask him to stay. Ephesus is now ready to receive. Something's gone on between the first and the second visit. Something's, something's moving. And Paul says, I will return if it's God's will. At this point, it's working for Paul. Paul's gone somewhere and suddenly he walks in the synagogue and he goes, um, Christ crucified. And suddenly they go, ooh. Now, I think it's quite tough for him to say, I'll return if it's God's will. Because suddenly it's working for him. Suddenly there's a triumph. Suddenly there's like a light on. But what's interesting about Paul is he's fixed on God's will. Even under the triumph, he still heads to Jerusalem. And even in the good and the bad times, Paul's faithfulness and obedience is resolute. So are we willing to define success as only following God's will? It's an interesting one. Question seven, the final question you'll be pleased to know. Are we willing to be a lifelong learner? Now, some people have a natural talent for public speaking. You can tell it's not mine. Some even have a great message to go along with it. In verse 24, in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos. He's a preacher. He's a perfect mold. He's eloquent. He's a great communicator. He's competent in the scriptures and he's fervent in the spirit. Now, what does fervent mean? Well, it's a bit like Billy prayed before. It's passionate intensity. It's a cup overflowing. He's, he's, really, he's really got this. Except one thing. He only knew half the story. Now, you can imagine Apollos arrives in Ephesus shortly after Paul's departure, and he has an immediate impact. He spoke boldly in public, interpreting, applying the Old Testament scriptures accurately, he debated with opponents of, the, of Christianity forcefully and effectively, but it didn't take him long to be noticed by Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple, this man and woman, quickly realized that Apollos didn't have the full story. His preaching was based on Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and John the Baptist's message. It's almost possible that Apollos was there during John's ministry and he'd heard this great news, this incredible message, and he goes, you know what, I need to tell others about this Messiah, that he's come in. I need to tell him. But he only has half the story. But he's still preaching with passion. Although his natural abilities could have made him proud, Apollos proved himself willing to learn. God used Priscilla and Aquila, fresh from months of learning from Paul, to give Apollos the complete gospel. And because Apollos did not hesitate to become that student, he became an even better teacher. And as we learn later, Apollos travels to Corinth and starts preaching and teaching. Now Paul, later on in the Bible, writes warmly of Apollos as a fellow minister who had watered the seeds of the gospel that Paul had planted in Corinth. 
Okay, that's your job interview done. So how did we do? So, one thing we do know is this. In a, in, in a quick summary, ho our homes are a valuable medium for evangelism. Do not underestimate your home, or your tent, for that matter, or the coffee shop. All of these are valuable mediums for evangelism. Just invite someone for a brew. Why do, we, why do we only think that God can move on a Sunday? Invite someone for a brew and let's just see what God can do. Every one of us, we all need to be well educated in the faith, regardless of our role in the church and on Sunday, to encourage each other. We also need a clear defense of the gospel because that can be a real encouragement both to believers and also help convince our non-believers of the truth. With Priscilla and Aquila, we find that couples can also have an effective ministry. We actually see that in our church with lots of the married couples here. We need to be open to change, real change. To see God move in our community, we need to be listening to the Spirit even when it makes no sense. We also need to be relevant to today's culture. We need to have patience. Patience with each other and patience also in time. Because the day you plant the seeds is not the day you eat the fruit. And finally... The gospel is simple. The Lord be with you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.